and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 97, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by tuning into your heart's truesthest love. Aww. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> what do we got for this week? This week, we got Young Romance, number one. This is September, October, 1947, cover date by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, published by Feature Publications, and came with a cover price of 10 cents. A flat dime. And, you know, a little little bit of preamble before we get into this. Uh, this is definitely a big blind spot for Chris and myself in our yes. personal comedy. We talked about this with the Western one, too. Just, you know, was not a part of our era, really. That's all there is to it. Uh, it's true. But this is this is our, uh, you know, first foray into the genre, and uh, maybe in the future we'll be able to peel back other layers of this once incredibly ubiquitous uh, form of comic book. But we'll get into more mm-hmm. of that later on. So this is actually the first ever romance comic, they say, yes. some say, and it was done <laughs> by none other than Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, uh, for much more expanded biographies on these two guys, check out episode 17 of Weird Comics History. That's the lives and times of Jack Kirby and Joe Simon in our archives. It's well titled because it's a long biography about the two of them. Uh, but we'll just do a little condensed version with a concentration on leading to the creation of Young Romance Number 1. So, Joseph Henry Joe Simon was born... Jaime Simon, on October 11th, 1913, in Rochester, New York. He graduated Benjamin Franklin High School in 1932, where he was the art director of his high school newspaper and yearbook. Uh, Two universities paid $10 apiece for two of his Art Deco splash pages that were in the yearbook, uh, which was not a tiny amount of money in those days, especially for a 17-year-old, you know. Uh, He worked for a few Rochester, Syracuse-era newspapers, and he was hired by art director Adolf Edler of the Rochester Journal American to work as his assistant. He did mostly photo retouching, but as a small-town paper, the art director ultimately does a little of everything. And after about a year, he was doing sports-related editorial cartoons and ears, which were cartoon embellishments in the upper left corner of every section opener. So there's one for the art section, one for the sports section, so on. Little doodles, I guess. Mad marginals, we can call them today, I think. Yeah. He took a job at the Syracuse Herald in 1934 for $45 a week, and he did sports and editorial cartoons here, too. Then he worked at, uh, Joe worked at Syracuse Journal until it folded in 1936, and he struck out to find his career in New York City at the age of 23. There, he did illustration work for McFadden Publications, drawing pictures for True Story and some other pulp magazines. 
Harlan Crandall, the art director at McFadden, recommended Joe to Lloyd Jacquet or Jacquet of Funnies Inc. That's a comic packager, as well as a production uh, style at the time. Yeah. Uh, his first job from Funnies Inc. was a seven-page Western story. Four days later, he created the, a Human Torch ripoff called The Fiery Mask. And that was at the request of Martin Goodman of Timely Comics. Well, the ripoff is old character. We don't, we don't, Why? Yeah, yeah, you Why can't not? sue yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, eventually, he was hired by Victor Fox of Fox Feature Syndicate as an editor. Uh, this was the company best known for producing Phantom Lady and as well as the original Blue Beetle. We'll hop over to Jack Kirby. Jacob Kurtzberg was born August 28, 1917 in the Lower East Side, New York City. Claims to have been rejected by the Educational Alliance for drawing too fast with charcoal. Uh, the Educational Alliance is a social institution that was organized in 1889 to educate and Americanize immigrants. He would hone his skills drawing cartoons for the newspaper of the Boys Brotherhood Republic. That was a miniature city on 3rd Street where street kids ran the show. Uh, the Boys Brotherhood Republic was a social club of all young boys setting their own rules, though with the guidance of an adult. Uh, Jack would attend the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn for a week before dropping out. They didn't take to that kind of uh, instructional <laughs> stuff. Uh, Certainly not. Uh, when we first read about the Boys Brotherhood Republic, we were really hoping it was like a Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Uh, you Lord know, Robinson Caruso with kids <laughs> kind of scenario, but no, it was really more like a 4-H club. And But uh, apparently they like elected their own like mayor and stuff like this. Their own government. Treasurer, yeah. 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 So it must have been, must have been fun. Uh, now, Jack began drawing strips for the Lincoln Newspaper Syndicate in 1936. He found work with the Eisner Iger comic book shop around the same time and first used the name Kirby for two lone writer Western stories as Lance Kirby in Famous Funnies 63 and 64. That was October, November 1939 by Eastern uh, Color Printing. Kirby starts working for Fox Feature Syndicate at $15 a week and he worked on their biggest character, Blue Beetle. Then Jack met Fox Features editor Joe Simon, and they hit it off right away. Kirby says it's because they appreciated each other's clothes. Simon's neatly kept suit, and since his dad was a tailor, and Kirby's nice pants, and his father worked at one of the sweatshops in the garment district. So they both had a taste for fine clothing. Uh, really also made quite a pair. Joe was tall and lanky. Jack was kind of short and squat and pugnacious. It really must have been like... Uh, Twins or something, right? That Danny DeVito <laughs> Danny and Arnold DeVito, Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Now, uh, Simon and Kirby began working freelance together through Joe's office. Uh, they would supply mainly to Fox Features. Uh, Joe Simon broke his contract with Fox to become the first editor at Timely Publications, and he worked on their adult magazines, including Swank. Oh. Uh, and don't know what that is. <laughs> In uh, 1940, they uh, they create Cap and uh, Captain America number one debuts with the cover date of March 1941. It did go on sale to December 20th of 1940. Uh, from his position as editor, he was able to negotiate 25% of the profits from this issue for he and Kirby. Wow. Which uh, ain't no uh, small chunk of change. Nope. And uh, there weren't any other people getting that kind of deal, I don't think, at that time. I would imagine not. Yeah. Now, this first printing sold out, and the second printing sold a million copies. Uh, after this success, Kirby is hired to Timely as an art director, and he's hired by Joe. <laughs> Uh, Convenient Martin, to that, yeah. It is, it is. Uh, Martin Goodman was not forthcoming with the money that Joe felt they were owed, so Joe and Jack would work and would find work at national publications, which we know today as DC Comics. Uh, Kirby and Simon negotiated a deal that would pay them a combined $500 a week, as opposed to the $75 and $85 they respectively would earn at Timely. Uh, eventually, uh, national editor Jack Leibowitz told them, quote, do what you want. 
And they revamped two characters, that's Sandman and Manhunter, and they both appeared in the anthology comic Adventure Comics. Uh, Manhunter would be more of a hard reboot and came with a new identity and everything, so a totally new dude. Yeah, Sandman just kind of got a new outfit that was purple and gold, and Sandy, who was already there, I think. I don't know if Sandy came with Kirby and Joe or... I don't remember, but anyway. I couldn't say, yeah. In July 1942, they began the Boy Commandos feature in Star Spangled Comics, and in 1942, they debuted the successful Newsboy Legion, one of my favorites, also in Star Spangled Comics. This was number seven, April 1942, cover date. Then Jack Kirby was drafted into the U.S. Army June 7th, 1943, and Joe Simon joined the Coast Guard not long after that. After the war, and believe me, there's... A lot of stuff happened to them in the, during the war, but uh, after the war, Simon was able to get work for he and Kirby through Harvey Comics. And for Harvey, the duo created such titles as the Kid Gang Adventure, Boy Explorers Comics, the Kid Gang Western, Boy's Ranch, and the superhero comic Stuntman with no Kid Gang. And nope. capitalizing on the 3D movie <laughs> fad, Captain 3D. Uh, Jack and Joe produced a comic for Hillman periodicals called My Date. This had a March 1947 cover date that depicted teenage life in a more frank, adult way than depicted before. Normally, teenagers in comics just became superhero sidekicks, but here they had like a life and thoughts and things like that. Uh, This was a massively popular book, and Simon used this windfall to negotiate a deal with Teddy Epstein's Crestwood Publishing to set up their own imprint called Prize Group, where Joe and Jack, and this is amazing, would had relative artistic freedom, and they earned an incredible 50% of the profits. You're not going to find a deal like that? Anywhere in publishing, my friend. That's unbelievable. Uh, Simon and Kirby published Young Romance Number 1. That's the comic we're talking about, September, October, cover date, 1947. And the new comics genre was born. Mm -hmm. But why romance comics? I don't know. Ah, Well, the earliest comic books, like uh, Famous Funnies, that's July 1934 through July 1955, and Feature Funnies, October 1937 through May 1939, uh, these were all colored reprints of daily comic strips, which were not necessarily targeted to one age group or gender. Indeed, some of them were decidedly more adult. Uh, Mutt and Jeff by Bud Fisher at this time is a strip about a couple of gambling addicts. Yeah. So not something that... A lot of these had better. to do with, you know, the, the lead character goes out, ties one on, gets real drunk. You know, funny things Passes happen. out in the lawn, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Now, by the time America entered World War II, comic books were filled with original content, much of it tending toward the superhero craze. Uh, these were primarily meant for younger boys, though some titles featuring, quote, good girl art were enjoyed by members of the U.S. military. Though there were funny animal titles and usual comic strip reprints that could also be enjoyed just about just about by anybody. Yeah. Uh, when World War II ended in 1945, a lot of GIs came home ready to enter life as young adults. Suddenly, the kitty fair of men in scarves flying through the air didn't quite cut it, and superheroes all but disappeared from comics entirely. Instead, comics tried to capture this adult market with stories more akin to the popular films of the day. Those included western, horror, and, of course, romance. There, here's, uh, here's evidence of a, silver, a sliver of 20th century history where this concept of adults reading comic book stories was considered in America, while, uh, while a movement was growing to classify them as kid stuff for decades to come. And you can learn more about that in episodes one through five of Weird Comics History in the archives. Yeah, we're going to circle back around and talk more about uh, romance comics and their impact and how they changed over time. But 
this really is just this little suspended moment where it's all mm-hmm. about to come down hard on them, you know what I mean? But <laughs> true. in this little thing, they get to do whatever they like. So let's dive right into this romantic comic. And uh, so of course, it is Young Romance number one. And this cover has an entire romantic scene happening. Uh, mm-hmm. One that isn't even in the book. It's just a, no. just a new romantic scene. Uh, a blonde artist in a brown smock holding a brush and palette. And that's how we know he's an artist, naturally. He's saying, no, Linda, we can't go on like this. You know I'm engaged to your kid. Sister Janie, and he stands before a sultry redheaded model in a rough, ruffled red gown. She says, But darling, Jane is a child. She doesn't have the fire to kindle the spark of your genius. You need me, John. And in the background, a more mousy looking brunette enters the room. I'm going to say this is Janie, I have a feeling. And Probably. She, yeah. she thinks to herself, Oh, John. Uh, so, really, this is a story right here. It is. I think we got got our first story down. Now, the title, Young Romance, is set in a red type against a yellow banner. Uh, The word young is not capitalized. In case you find that illegible, it says Young Romance in bold capital letters in a white box at the upper left corner of the cover. Uh, Now, the cover copy promises 52 pages of real-life stories. And also, all true love stories. (laughs) And uh, perhaps the most uh, telling about the intended audience says, designed for the more adult readers of comics. Yeah, I'll say it's telling. I mean, it's right up front there about the attention in the in the uh, caption. So certainly, uh, the first story is called "I Was a Pickup." And this story is narrated by the pickup herself, Tony Benson. She's got black hair and wears a green dress and has a. Uh, we're gonna say Kirby Lady Face. Is that, a, that yeah. people know what we're talking about here? Mind you, this is this is a younger Kirby too. This is a you know what will you be here like twenty nine or something? I think so. Uh, somewhere around there. So yeah, this is uh, he's still figuring it out a little bit. So she suggests this story should be a warning for those who might face temptation as she did, and says the result of not heeding your advice is a reputation. No. Oh, no. <laughs> we start with a large panel showing Tony in the car with an aggressive fella. In true Golden Age fashion, this is actually the climactic scene of the story. <laughs> so it ruins everything for us. Uh, but we'll move on anyway. It seems as though uh, Tony lives with her overbearing grandmother who won't let her carouse around with other teenagers. And we don't want to impugn this fictional character all that much, but uh, Tony's grandmother is horrifically ugly. I mean, yeah, I mean, she actually might be Tony's grandfather in a wig. She looks really... She's out there, yeah. She got hit with the ugly stick, folks. She she chased Paul Cause, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Now, (laughs) Grandma explains that Tony can't go out with wayward hoodlums because that's exactly what her mother did. Uh, Crying on her bed, Tony reflects on her mother having left when she was a baby. And we also learn that this takes place in a small town called Bradley, Pennsylvania, which doesn't exist. No, it does not exist. Uh, Tony gets jeers at school for being such a homebody, and then that evening, Tony's grandmother asks her to clean up the attic. Uh, Tony agrees. Dressed in some old clothes and a bandana, she gets right to work. It really is a lot to ask of someone, especially on a weeknight. This attic is, like, totally packed with junk. It's, you know, everywhere I look, there's this there's heavy stuff. I see a large love seat jammed in back yeah. in there for crying out loud. This is, I mean, I, you would think she had to go up there and do like a vacuuming and a dusting. This is like heavy lifting. Uh, it's not, mm-hmm. doesn't seem right. But while she's up there, she cracks open a trunk of her mother's and pulls out a red dress. Uh, Tony figures she can wear it herself with some alterations, so she does just that. Uh, it's a little low cut with lace around the neckline. Feeling mighty fine, Tony goes for a stroll in her new red dress, imbued with the ghost of her slutty mother, I guess. <laughs> and uh, while out and about, some guy in a convertible hits on her, and he t- and she takes the bait. 
He drives her around for a while. Uh, this constituted a practical uh, consummation of marriage in the late 40s. Pretty much, so, yeah. Uh, I believe that they, they are now married. Yeah. <laughs> they are now married. Uh, he eventually introduces her as, himself as Bob Scott, and his father runs the town. Well, he almost runs it anyway. That's what he says, uh, what that means. But... <laughs> yeah. Back at home, Granny disapproves with a withering look. And let me tell you, if you've got a withering look from that mug, you would know it. You would wither. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tony and Bob... Bob go out uh, a lot more, despite Grandma's disapproval. He wants to get the smooching, but Tony is withholding. Bob won't, however, visit at Tony Tony's uh, grandmother's house, despite her invitations. Now, this nags Tony, but she ultimately shrugs it off. One night, Bob takes Tony to a roadhouse. For those of us who haven't seen the 1989 film starring Patrick Swayze, a roadhouse is a commercial establishment designed to serve rural motorists. Therefore, it's usually on the side of a road. Uh, it acts as a restaurant. It serves meals, especially in the evenings, and uh, should have a bar and features music, dancing, and sometimes gambling. In the days of uh, horse-driven carriages, these places would also offer lodging, but not so much since cars came along. Yeah, you don't need to spend the night cause to go another 100 miles or whatever. Uh, sure. So this roadhouse is the music, dancing, and gambling type, and a bouncer, Stanley Budko, and we'll be calling him Budko as much as possible, suggests to Bob <laughs> that Tony is too young for this type of establishment, and when we tell you her age, <laughs> it's coming up, you will agree. Uh, Bob tells Budko to mind his own business, and then Bob tries to get Tony drunk. She's never never had anything to drink before, and Budko keeps his eye on Tony while she gets loaded. Later, Bob and Tony are playing some roulette, and then the place gets raided by the cops. Uh, this is Bradley, Pennsylvania, not Reno after all, so it's still mm-hmm. quite illegal. Everyone rushes to the exit, and Bob wants nothing to do with Tony. He can't afford to get mixed up in this, because I guess his dad runs the town. Uh, I mean, gambling is one thing, but this is adult mandating a high school senior is quite another <laughs> thing. Uh, Budko tries to make Bob take Tony with him, but Bob slaps him away, and Bob says, Tony is just a pickup. Uh, uh, so Budko cracks him one in the jaw. As Budko picks up Tony in his arms and takes off through a first floor window after kicking a table over into a cop. No, Budko drives Tony home. Uh, she won't cry despite feeling ashamed. Uh, back at Tony's house, her grandmother sees Budko and thinks he's a no good hoodlum. And she's not entirely wrong. Uh, Budko knows when he's not wanted, so he takes off. The next day, Budko finds Tony walking home from school. He's sitting on a horse-drawn ice delivery wagon. Uh, this used to be a thing before widespread refrigeration. Yes. It turns out uh, he's just sitting on it to cool off. He's not even an ice delivery man. He's just hanging out. <laughs> he's, just, he's just warm. Uh, Budko hops down to talk to Tony. He tells her that he had a bad childhood, and that's how he got the reputation as a gangster. Uh, hanging out at the roadhouse probably didn't help that no. reputation much, yeah. I imagine. Being a bouncer at an illegal gambling institution probably isn't that great. But, uh no. Tony digs the sob story and gives him a big kiss. Perhaps her first one, huh? Perhaps his first one. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they go out for a while, but people in the town talk behind their backs. Oh, those Bradley women will talk. Uh, mm-hmm. One day, a random kid delivers a letter to Tony. This, I mean, <laughs> just, a just a kid in a striped shirt just walks up to her. Are you, are you Stan's girl? I got a note for you. Uh, it's from Budco, and it reads... You're a sweet kid, and I'm just a guy who's been around too much. So I thought it best I leave before you're hurt, Stan. And this makes her weep. One tear. 
from the corner of her right eye and the outside corner at that like it did, yes. that, that's how much the tear pooled <laughs> so a year passes and here it is now tony is 18 that's right folks she was 17 up till now. <laughs> While she's walking along, a guy named Jerry asks her if she wants to go for a drive, and she's cool with it. Hours later, Jerry claims to have run out of gas, and he may have as big as the boat he's driving is, I'll oh, tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jerry tries to make moves on Tony, put the moves on Tony here. Uh, says he knows her reputation, her pickups and dalliances with gangsters. Uh, Tony opens the car door and dashes out, despite being in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so she walks for hours. Uh, Jerry appealed to her, but eventually drove away. Uh, Tony comes upon an Ethany gas station, which is not an actual brand of uh, gasoline. No. And there she finds Stanley Budko. He's dressed in uh, period-correct gas station attendant gear, uh, even including the cap. Of course. Uh, he owns the place, and now he's an honest man. So t- Tony hops into his arms and... Uh, I guess they get married or something now, right? Yeah, I don't know. It seems That's like every, nice. everything's fine after that. Whatever. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> the end. That, that's, that's it. Put a cap on it right there. Period. Oh, boy, I don't want to hurt you. I'm just going to go buy a gas station. That's all. You know, now yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky you happen to stroll by after a crappy date. This exactly worked perfectly to my plan. And after your 18th birthday. Exactly. Then that's what really... <laughs> <laughs> That's I what he was really hanging around for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. We hop to our next story, The Farmer's Wife. Now, the splash page here doesn't quite give away the climax of the story, but it does depict a future event, so we'll just move on from it without mentioning. Uh, though it is worth mentioning that the words Farmer's Wife in the title are rendered to look like planks of wood. Yeah, pretty poorly. So I just, I just like, love the idea of it. Like you know? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> So, Nurse Nancy Merrin was working at the Naval Hospital in Washington, D.C. Veteran Bill, who never does have his last name revealed, is admitted. He's been stricken with malaria. A malaria of love. Uh, No, but seriously, malaria is a debilitating illness that, if not treated quickly, uh, could really do some damage. That's right. Um, Now, (laughs) Nancy and Bill hit it off well while he's convalescing. Despite she being 21 years old and he... 36. Eventually, Bill gets over his malaria and is released from the hospital. And that's that. Three days later, Nancy gets a phone call. To the hall phone at her all-woman boarding house, naturally. That's the only way for a single woman to live. (laughs) Gotta be in that house. Mm -hmm. Now, it's Bill. And he asks her out on a date. For some reason, Bill begins calling her Duchess here. Yeah, and never stops. never stops. Nancy accepts, despite the strange and uh, uh, kind of creepy nickname. Yeah, she, she just becomes Duchess. Uh-huh. Uh, so after this, Bill and the Duchess keep going out on <laughs> dates and falling deeper in love with one another. And Bill tells Nancy about some farmland he owns in rural Virginia. He bought it after graduating farm school. Something he literally says, farm school. Yeah, farm I did school. not say that. Uh, he'd like to move out there and, lend, and tend the land if Nancy will go with him and be his wife. Sorry. If Duchess will go with Duchess, him and make yes. him a duke. Uh, so Nancy agrees to his fumbling marriage proposal, but says he's meant for better things than fooling around with dirt. More importantly, she's meant for better things. Mm. Nancy says she can land him a career at the Department of Agriculture so they won't have to leave Washington, D.C. Despite Bill telling her he didn't like the city literal moments before, <laughs> he acquiesces to Nancy's wishes and agrees to go white-collar. Mm-hmm. They are wed, and all seems happy. 
Once settled into married life, however, things take a turn. Isn't that always the way? Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy has plans for the two of them most weeknights. However, Bill is too exhausted after a long day's work to do much of anything. The final straw is when Nancy has tickets to see the play at the Capitol that evening. But Bill comes home so tired he, quote, can't see straight. Fuming, Nancy decides to go downtown and take in the play herself. After being out for the evening and mulling it over, Nancy decides they are both right and wrong in the situation. <laughs> which... <laughs> Which is why Nancy went into medicine and not law. Yeah, she doesn't come to a very good conclusion here, but uh, she eventually does go home and find a note from Bill that reads, Darling Duchess, I cannot help but see you are unhappy with me, and so I leave you rather than cause you misery. I will see to it you receive enough for support, and if you want to divorce me, I will not stand in your way. Love, Bill. So Nancy's in a haze for a few days after that. Then one evening, one evening her puritanical imp friend appears to chastise her. And that's not an allegory. An yep. actual transparent imp appears on Nancy's bed and tells her to stick by your grandfather husband. The man is only 36, for heaven's sake. God, they make this guy seem like he's an old... like A hundred. He won't be living long anyway, Nancy. You might as well just put in a couple <laughs> of years. He's going to wither away. and then you You'll can get that up. land in West Virginia. Everything will be, be great. Uh, so, the imp, too, like, where did that come from? <laughs> Nancy hops right out of bed and resigns to keep up the bargain she made, and she drives out to Bill's farm and agrees to stay with him there, and I guess this is a happy ending? Right. Right? I, we think it is, uh, it, I guess. She basically gave, she up, gave her up her life. Yeah, yeah. so uh, everything worked out just fine. <laughs> uh, so, right on to the next story. Misguided Heart. Here, the splash page is helpful because it reveals the cast. We got mm. June Collins. She's a factory worker, and she's a brunette and supposedly pretty. Still afflicted with some Kirby <laughs> face, but we get the idea. I think, I think she's supposed to resemble Joan Collins. I think so. But, uh, yeah, she, she looks like a Kirby girl. Uh, Sherman Sherman, who worked beside her, but she never noticed him until Carl, her boss, gave her the glamour. The excitement she always craved. Hold on, hold on. This guy's name is Sherman Sherman? Uh, he does look like a Sherman Sherman, a sort of unassuming guy in glasses. Uh, I guess, so. yeah. And Carl looks like a man with black hair. That's that's a very good way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> now, a large panel shows June applying some lipstick while Sherman Sherman, hat in hand, appeals to her. June says she's got a date with the boss. Sherman says, but June, dear, he's not your king. He's a he's blue blood, and we're just factory workers. You're a sweet kid, June, and I don't want you to be hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't say so on the title page, but Carl's last name is Barton, and the factory is therefore known as Barton's Factory. And June is the prettiest girl at Barton's Factory, naturally. Yeah, we'll, we'll take the caption's word for it, because... Yeah, we, we don't want to see the lineup. <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> June works in the tool department. We never do find out what this factory actually makes, though. Uh, June tries to get Carl's attention when he walks by, to no avail. Meanwhile, on the factory floor and handling some machinery is Sherman Sherman, otherwise known as Ditto. Get it? Yeah. Uh. It's, 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 almost, it's almost just as bad a name as Sherman Sherman, quite frankly. It is. <laughs> now, a co-worker tells him he doesn't have a shot with June because she's got class. Yeah, whereas you're a two-bit bum. But, mm -hmm. uh, Shyman, Shyman. So while uh, Sherman daydreams about June, Carl comes over and hollers at him. Calls Sherman stupid and careless and 
Carl instructs Sherman on the correct way to do his job. Sherman thinks Carl's being a blowhard, having inherited this factory from his father. And nearby, June swoons at Carl breaking the chops of another employee. See, she'll make a fine corporate wife. Exactly, that's all you need to do, you know, just uh, mm-hmm. look on approvingly while your husband's a jerk. Uh, Carl goes to complain to his father, Carl Barton Sr., about their lazy employees, and Carl Sr. feels more trusting of them. But after about two seconds of hectoring, Carl Sr. acquiesces to him. <laughs> I think he just wants his son out of his office, really. That's all. Just like, oh, whatever, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, fine, I'll take care of it. Now, uh, Carl storms out of the office, feeling guilty for treating his father so poorly. Still thinking, he reveals his management philosophy that one cannot be too chummy with his employees. While lost in thought, Carl walks by some machinery that is toppling over for some reason. Uh, This story really uh, gives us a chance to see some early Jack Kirby machine designs, which is pretty cool. June calls out to the nearby men, and they all scatter, except for Carl, who is transfixed with fear. Scheumann rushes over and shoves Carl out of the way just in the nick of time. They both tumble to the ground, and Carl seems alarmed. Afterward, Carl is not grateful nor apologetic. He is dismissive. He goes on to chastise June for yelling and calls Sherman clumsy. I mean, literally, the people that saved his life. His like, life, yeah. He's like, and, you, yeah. you clumsy, noisy people. <laughs> uh, so later, Carl Sr. tells his son he should have been more polite to Sherman, you know, for saving his life. Yeah. But Carl Jr. points out that if he had been appreciative, then he would have lost the employee's respect and somehow bruised his own dignity in there. Oh, there's logic to that. I guess there is. Uh, Carl Sr. has had it, and since he still owns the company, he tells his son he's going to work on the factory floor tomorrow. Man, the guy looks like he's a melting candle on some of these panels. Jack Kirby just does not like the elderly. Right here. Yikes, what happened to this poor poor fella? Uh, The next day, Carl shows up at June's window to check out some tools, and she is stunned to see him. While there, Carl hits on June and asks her out for a date that very evening, and she readily agrees. That night, they go dancing, and June wonders what Carl sees in her, while Carl, on the other hand, is reminding himself that June is not in his social class. It's always a good way to start a relationship. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that night, June moons about Carl, who asked her for another date. She mentions, for no specific reason, how much better Carl is than Sherman. Like, what? The guy's <laughs> not even there. Like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Speaking of Sherman, he's home smoking his pipe, thinking about how much he loves June. Carl, on the other hand, loves only himself. The next day, Sherman tries to help Carl on some piece of machinery. What does this factory do? There's like a belt thing here? That, yeah. I don't know what's going on. They might make uh, soda-serve machines. It's very weird. <laughs> They're a widget factory. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Carl tells Sherman to buzz off and not to get too bent out of shape uh, on him for dating his girl. Uh, Sherman says he's just being democratic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sherman flies into a rage and punches Carl right in the face. June overheard this scuffle and runs to Sherman's side. And now she sees what a weakling Carl is. Sherman thinks he'll be fired. However, Carl Sr. shows up out of nowhere. Uh, he winds up giving Sherman a promotion. What? And uh, we assume everyone lives happily ever after? Yeah. Thanks, thanks for punching my son in the face. Here's a promotion. <laughs> there you go. What the? All right. Uh, interesting. So, uh, though that's the first couple of stories. Now, this is the story we're going to expand on because this one is uh, definitely the most amazing one in the issue. Uh, it's called The Plight of the Suspicious Bridegroom, and we're really excited to present something in comic books that had never been tried before, and we don't think has ever been tried since, right, Chris? We hope not. We I don't think not. we've ever seen this ever again. 
the title page promises you can live this true story, a new <laughs> technique in comics. Now, the splash page, uh, the splash panel here is pretty innocuous. Uh, a red-haired woman packing, a row of people lining up at a telephone, while uh, it looks like uh, a butler is using it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're sure this will all make sense pretty sure. soon. Caption reads, what does it take to make a love story? Usually a man, a girl, and a villain. But when the villain is handicapped by a twisted mind, well, that makes a tale of intrigue so startling that you will find it hard to believe. I want to tell you the story anyway, just as it happened to me. So just put yourself in my place. Look at what happened through my own eyes. And maybe that way it might be more conceivable. Now this new technique is revealed on the very next page. And, uh, oh boy. Um, Now, so the the panels in which you are looking through the eyes of the story's narrator, it's almost like you're wearing a mask of the flesh of his face. Yeah. I mean, you're you're looking through, like, round, squishy, fleshy eye holes yeah. that are ringed with eyelashes. Ew! Oh, it's horrible. Um, now, it's something that really needs to be seen to be believed, and you better believe that samples of this will be in the show notes on the blog. Yeah, but this issue, it, can be, it is public domain. It can be downloaded for free, so if you want to see the whole thing, we'll uh, have Maybe a we link can to link it. to that if it's, we'll, yeah. Yeah, we'll link to that, but I'll, there'll be uh, just... Shots of these panels if you want to see oh. what we're talking about. This this new effect is pretty it's meat. Uh, basically, meat <laughs> is a great way to describe it. <laughs> Caption reads, remember now, we're looking through my eyes. Yeah, we won't forget that. Yeah. Uh, now, the narrator, or, or actually you, uh, press the up button on the elevator at the Bellevue Apartments. It arrives, and an elven-looking elevator operator in a purple uniform leers at you with bugged-out eyes. Uh, completely automatic elevators were actually available in 1900, but the public was reluctant to use them. I'm still uh, reluctant. Some, some people still are, yeah. <laughs> uh, it took a New York City elevator operator strike in 1945, plus the invention of the emergency stop button to get people into the idea, right? Probably right around the time this comic was uh, made, they, they started mm. to turn. So remember now, you're regarding this creepy guy through lumpy eyelets ringed with hair. Okay. Oh. <laughs> now the elevator operator goes, Yes, sir, going up. Let's step along, step along. 17, yes, sir. My favorite floor, my favorite floor. Yes, sir, my favorite floor. At least it has been for the past couple months. <laughs> uh, just so you know, you're not getting a tip now, by the way. Mm. So the elevator comes to a screeching halt with a squee. Whoop, old Nelly is stuck again. <laughs> That's what she said uh, about him mm. uh, regarding her. Oh, yes. Uh, the elevator operator whips out a scrapbook and an actual paste pot. <laughs> They'll get us out in five or ten minutes. Yes, sir, they will. In the meantime, if you don't mind, I'll work on my hobby. My hobby. <laughs> I mean, he literally had one job. Just and he, one. He's, he's, not, he can't even do that. Uh, so we see that this elevator operator keeps a scrapbook of news articles, newspaper articles. These are about socialite women that have all broken off their engagements. and. You see this, of course, through a pulpy eye hole with oh, eyelashes wow. that look like flagella on a paramecium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, my hobby. See? Yes, sir. It's my hobby. I collect, some people collect stamps, no, there's butterflies, but I collect broken engagements. <laughs> the ones I break, I mean. Uh, sir, I'd like to lodge a complaint with your union. <laughs> to say, mm-hmm. That's not what I signed up for. 
<laughs> I can see you don't believe me for beans. Well, sir, I'm in the middle of a case right now. Suppose you just follow me around. I'll tell you how it's gone up to now. So the scene switches to the interior of an apartment, uh, gonna guess a Bellevue apartment, where the red-haired woman in the red dress named Anne and her fiancé Frank McHale look at their engagement announcement in the newspaper. Now the elevator operator narrates the scenes, but there's no more fleshy eye holes for the time being. Thank goodness. <laughs> First, I watch for anyone in this here apartment house who announces an engagement, like this one. In the flashback, Anne goes, there we are, Mr. Frank McHale. Our engagement in the paper. That picture really flatters me. Frank says, no picture could ever do you justice, Anne, darling. None of them can quite capture your, hawk your hawkish nose. No, they don't quite got it. Uh, Frank and Anne embrace for a romantic kiss. Lover. Sweetheart. And then back to the elevator operator and that view from within your skull. <laughs> That's the case I'm on now. Of course, it's a bit tougher than the others. You see, I never really laid eyes on the feller. But it don't matter, so long as I have his name and address, which I do, of course. Well, after the, after the clinch, then I struck. At Frank's office, he is doing uh, office work. Sure. I mean, he's, like, holding a piece of paper and smoking a cigarette, so I guess that's pretty Honest much... day's work. Right. <laughs> a, a woman who we can guarantee is his secretary drops a letter <laughs> off on his desk. Letter for you, Mr. McHale? Hmm? Oh, thank you. And Frank opens the letter, and it reads... Dear sir, do you know what you're doing marrying this woman? She is a cheat, and only after your money. Believe me, your unknown friend. Frank thinks nothing of the letter and chucks it into his wastebasket. He says, Haha, what are the boys at the club joking? And do they actually think I'm fool enough to fall for that trash? Someone's trying to break up your impending marriage. Uh, this goes just a tad further than your average just run-of-the-mill prank, right? I know, I'm trying to ruin your life here, buddy. The whole life, yeah. <laughs> uh, now the elevator operator reveals a little more of the extent of his plot. I sent letter after letter to his office, to his home. And here we see Frank arrives home and his butler Jenkins hands him a letter immediately. And that letter says, I warn you, she is no good. She was out this afternoon dressed in yellow with another man. Frank says, some character really wants to fill my wastebaskets. You think it might be the uh, local wastebasket mafia? Ooh, they're always out to fill wastebaskets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rumor has it there there is no wastebasket mafia. Oh, that's what they, just... that's what they want you to believe, Chris. <laughs> it's just families right. of wastebasket. Uh, no. <laughs> well, then, after taking off his tie, Frank overhears part of a radio play. Yeah, and the radio, a fellow named Edward says, You may as well tell the truth, Jane. Who are you running around with last night? And Jane replies with, Put down the gun, Edward. You're mad with jealousy. And the elevator man continues to unfurl his devious plan. She came down in my elevator that afternoon in a yellow dress. So I wrote that note in hopes she'd be wearing it when he came home that night. So Anne greets Frank with a hug and is indeed wearing a yellow dress, although it's more of a mustard color, but I'll let it slide this time. I think that's fine. It's close enough. Huh? Yeah. And Anne goes, darling, you're early. Frank says, I couldn't wait to see you. I... I missed you so. Why, what's the matter, Frank? Er, nothing. Just tired, I guess. And he thinks to himself, yellow dress, that note. 
Mm. And now back to eye socket vision. <laughs> well, sir, I saw him that night going out, though I didn't see nothing but his back. Anyway, she had on the yellow dress, and I knew I'd scored one. Now all the note writing led to this big moment. It works the same in every case. I'd watch the society column until the right time. And here the elevator operator points to one of the articles in his scrapbook. Like this item, see? It tells how her grandmother left town on a country trip. Then I went to work for the big blow-off. <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think of this, folks. No. Uh, the little stalker sends a telegram to this Anne that says her grandmother is ill. Yeah, Anne goes, oh, grandmom, she's ill. I've got to go to go to the poor dear now. But Frank's friends are giving me a big party tonight. Never mind. I've got to go see grandmom. Got a rush. I can phone Frank later from the country. Back to the elevator operator. When I sent her the telegram, I sent him a special delivery letter. I mean, how much does all this cost in postage, you know? I think this guy really should save his money and spend it on getting his thyroid checked, if you ask me. This this really is the main thing. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) The secretary, we're assuming it's a secretary, goes, special delivery for you, Mr. McHale. And that letter reads... Okay, sucker, this is it. Like I've been telling you, she's running out on you. You won't be seeing her this weekend, you poor dope. She's got more boyfriends than Cleopatra. Uh, Cleopatra the Seventh Philopator, 69 BC to 30 BC, was the last active ruler of the ancient Greek kingdom of Egypt. Despite the elevator guy's depiction, she was said to be quite chaste and fell deeply in love with one of Julius Caesar's officers, Mark Anthony. But back to back to looking through someone's flesh mask. Oh. <laughs> now, sir, that's the story up to this minute. Ten to one she leaves, he comes to check up, and bingo! I got me another busted romance for my book. Oops, you dropped something. The elevator operator stoops down to pick up a letter dropped by, well, you. Mm. Uh, and it's that special delivery letter that to Frank McHale that the creepy jerk sent earlier in the day. Now the eye holes have a slight frown to them, which <laughs> does not make them any less gross. Certainly not. You, you're, you're Mr. McHale, but I didn't know I was talking to you. I mean, no, you ah. And you see a view of yourself through frowning eye sockets, punch this terrible man in the jaw. <laughs> then you operate the elevator's lever and make it to the 17th floor by yourself. You mean without any training? I don't. I don't know how he did it. It was amazing, huh. but yeah, he did it all by himself. Uh, there, Anne's ready to greet you as the ele- elevator doors open. Down, please. Oh, my darling, what are you doing running the elevator? I thought I'd have to call you. And there's a close-up of Anne's face in your right eye socket. Uh, oh. I think this means you kiss her. Uh, while Why would anybody kiss that face? <laughs> really? I'll be there kiss her right on the eye. <laughs> uh, while a silhouetted shadow of smooching plays over the elevator operator lying on the ground with the scrapbook, the paste pot, and Frank's letter. Oh, my head! I guess that finishes my scrapbook. I mean, what? One measly failure? I mean, you know, so, so he's, he's run yeah. this scheme... Enough to fill a scrapbook, but he's never failed. Is that what he's trying to tell me? He's, only, he's broken every marriage he's ever tried to. It seems weird. Uh, so this elevator gremlin pulls the stamp from the special delivery letter sent to Frank earlier and says, Now there may be something to this stamp collecting after all. Yes, sir, you never can tell. So there we go. A beautiful story of 
oh, romance. Yes. You know, it occurs to me too that this plot would, even if the elevator operator had said nothing, this plot would have failed because he would have bumped into. He would have bumped into his and right there, the elevator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, so. But I gotta give it to them for the reveal because I never knew that that was us because I I would assume that the person in the elevator's eyes were all the way in the back of their skull. I, that's what I thought. I actually. And Frank looked normal. What what I what I thought it was I thought it was Leatherface wearing the uh, skin of another person. <laughs> that's what I thought we. That's what I thought we were. I was like, interesting. Okay. <laughs> That's, Why are you telling Leatherface? You are the serial killer. It was. It's really. <laughs> you got to go check out the blog. Uh, well, we'll yeah. drop the name of it later and everything. But it's it's unbelievable that it's one. Gross. So that's the one that we expanded on. But there is one more story in this issue, and it's called "Young Hearts Sing a Summer Song," and it's got another helpful titles page that gives us the cast of characters. There's blonde Jenny Porter who looks fierce and spunky. Waspish Chuck Haley, who looks just like his name sounds, mm-hmm. and exotic Pamela Bradford, who wears a flower in her hair. Because she's exotic. Very exotic, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the splash page is uh, its actually not a scene from the story. It shows Rick, a person that was rudely not mentioned in the cast of characters on the very same page. I mean, there are four characters in the story. <laughs> they couldn't name them all up front. They had to leave this one the secret, you know? Poor guy. Uh, now, he's rowing a boat with Jenny Porter in it, and they're lamenting the end of summer. Rick's thinking of all the fun they had together. Jenny's thinking about Rick marrying his fiance Pamela. So uh, they both got a lot to think about. Yeah. Uh, this all takes place in the seaside town of Ocean Point, which actually amazingly does not appear to be the name of any seaside town in America. Maybe this takes place in Canada. Oh, yes, that's right. Beautiful, sunny seaside Canada. <laughs> Couldn't think of that. So, Ocean Point is some kind of a vacation spot. It's essentially, I think, supposed to be a Jersey Shore uh, location in the, in the late hmm. 40s. The way, the way it's couched, uh, maybe not. But uh, the kind of place that comes alive every summer, but is otherwise dull all through the winter and everything. Uh, Jenny is at Jenkins Drugstore complaining about how lame her town is, and she gazes at a poster promoting a yacht club dance that Friday and how she wishes someone would invite her. The nameless woman behind the counter suggests that Jenny go to the dance with Chuck Haley, and Jenny replies verbatim, Chuck Haley? Poison water in a desert! No style! No savoir faire! I hate that Chuck Haley! Besides, he's not a member of the Yacht Club. He's a peasant, too. Mm, Just then, Chuck Haley shows up and tugs Jenny by her hair. He also calls her buzz bomb for some yeah, reason. I don't know what that's about. Uh, uh, Chuck invites Jenny down to the beach for a dip. And again, she says verbatim, Chuck Haley, can't you act like something other than a country boor? Really? I mean, all of her dialogue is amazing. This this was definitely on the on the block, possibly to expand with voices. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, the other one just took the cake because of its new technique. Yes, yes, we broke new ground there. Right. Now, <laughs> despite her protest, then Jenny uh, decides to head out for a swim with Chuck. That capricious beat. Uh, uh, she spies a well-appointed convertible of Rick Carlson, part of some uh, snobbish summer crowd, according to Chuck Haley, anyway. Uh, Jenny disagrees, and while at the beach, she tells Chuck to prove his love by scoring them invitations to the Yacht Club dance. Chuck says he wouldn't be caught dead there. So Jenny puts on her bathing cap. That's right, she puts on her bathing cap. Uh, yep. <laughs> and swims out to a flotilla. <laughs> and there she finds Pamela Bradford lounging in her bathing cap. Hmm. And a bathing suit, don't get us wrong. Sure. Uh, before introducing herself, she tells Jenny, and literally the first thing she says as Jenny swims up to it is she finds the villagers 
to be so quaint but so boring and yawns right in her face. Mm -hmm. uh, Jenny sheepishly admits to being one of these boring villagers and says she's loved to leave this one-horse town. Pamela introduces herself, then brusquely dives off the flotilla to complete her swim. While Jenny's hanging out there, Rick swings by in his sailboat, or yacht, maybe, I don't know what it is. Uh, he tells Jenny that she'll he'll take her to the yacht club dance instead of Pam, who he presumes is hanging out on the beach. But Pamela is actually on the far side of the flotilla, eavesdropping. <gasps> that evening, Pamela calls Rick and tells him he's got to take her to the yacht club dance, or else. Did he think she wouldn't know about it? Yeah. This, this this yacht dance seems like the only event in Ocean Point, right? I mean, literally. I mean, what, was he? It's a one horse town, right? Do they have another plan? Like, really? What's going on? <laughs> it's either you do the yacht club dance or you stay home. Uh, <laughs> so I, I guess he tells Jenny because the night of the dance, she's in Chuck's jalopy, going with him, and he calls her Jen Ren. Stick stick with the name, buddy. What did Buzz Bomb I... Jen Ren? What do you like here? Hmm. Now, on the way to the dance, Rick flies past Chuck in his more modern roadster. It's also like twice as long, too. Uh, at the dance, Jenny is having fun, but Chuck is not. Rick bumps into Chuck, then suavely trades partners with him, which leaves Pamela pretty miffed as well. But Pamela knows Rick's scheme, so she whispers a plan into Chuck's ear. So then Rick invites Jenny back to his mansion for a private shindig, and Jenny's reluctant to leave, so Rick grabs her hand and they dash out. When they leave, Chuck's hops, Chuck hops on a payphone and makes a call to Mr. Rick Carlson Sr., and he suggests the old bean rush home right away. Chuck wonders what Pamela's gotten up to and decides to follow Rick and Jenny in his jalopy. At the mansion, Rick tells, lets Jenny out of the car and into his house, and on the back of the car, we see a placard reading, Just Married, but they do not see it. <laughs> Inside, Rick cranks some tunes to get Jenny in the mood, but she is afraid. She thought there would be other people here. Well, he did say it was a shindig. That does imply other people, I gotta say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at that very moment, Rick Carlson Sr. shows up and sees his son's car in the turnabout. I mean, what? come on, what uh, mansion doesn't have a of turnabout? Of course, I already mentioned it. <laughs> and uh, Rick Sr. also sees the just married sign on the back of his son's car. He runs inside to find Rick trying to make time with Jenny. Rick Sr. accuses Rick Jr. of getting married. To which Rick Jr. scoffs and says that this girl's just a villager. Uh, Jenny hops up and calls both the men insulting snobs. She sprays Rick Jr. in the face with a seltzer bottle. Convenient. And yeah. uh, she runs off crying. That's it. Those Three Stooges shows, uh, they really paid off. You know you know what mm -hmm. to do. Uh, art imitating art, imitating life. I don't know why she called Rick Sr. a snob. He didn't even say anything insulting. He just I think he was more alarmed that his son had gotten married suddenly to someone he didn't know. True. You know? Mm -hmm. He didn't say anything mean about her. But uh, no. Jenny runs down the long driveway to the Carlson's, of the Carlson's mansion and finds Chuck and his jalopy outside the front gate. She hops in his jalopy, obviously distressed. Chuck asks Jenny what's wrong, and she says that Rick and his father were perfectly divine. And verbatim, she says, May I be struck by a thunderbolt if it isn't so. Then the jalopy backfires with a loud boom, and this makes Jenny, with, with a start, I guess, lean into Chuck's shoulder, sobbing about having been such a fool. Chuck says he knows their kind. As they cuddle up to a summer song on the radio, Chuck pats the side of his car and says, Good old jalopy, always there in a pinch. And so, another woman learns to settle for mediocrity and poverty. And that is the, the American dream. The true beauty of, of young mm -hmm. romance and all, and American, uh, you know, possibilities. So that does conclude the first issue of Young Romance and uh, the first ever 
or considered by many to be the first true romance comic. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty crazy, pretty weird. Yeah, I totally. gotta admit. But you know, I'll tell you something. Uh, we we have a an edition here, and like I said, you can uh, download the exact same one that we're looking at. When you look at the ads in here, they're for you know a wallet. They're for skin problems. Your skin. Yep. This was meant for older teenagers. You know, this was meant for for teens, not little kids. How to get along with girls? A book in here. There's like a bunch of you don't see like joy buzzers and and yeah, you know, no toys, no pranks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's you know I wouldn't call this you know this isn't uh, you know the kind of ads you would probably see in Time Magazine or whatever but uh, it just shows that they were definitely going for this older audience and I I find that interesting it's not you know people relegate comics to kitty fair but uh, there was sure. a little time and this is it that uh, we weren't we were kind of on the fence about it as a culture but anyway we're gonna take a little tiny break here uh, probably give you some good instructions on how to. Uh, you know, be romantic, and when we come mm-hmm. back, we're going to tell you more about romance comics. Popularity. What is it made of? How does a person get to be popular with lots of people and have a few close friends, too? Let's watch and see what makes people like one person and not another. Hey, Jerry, there's that new girl in our math class. Oh, yes. Her name's Carolyn Ames. She's a swell kid. Why? You know her? Not very well. I wish I did. I don't know what it is, but there's something about her you like. Well, she always looks nice to start with. Yeah, especially when you compare her with some of the weird characters in this place. Yoo-hoo! Jenny thinks that she has the key to popularity, parking in cars with the boys at night. When Jerry brags about taking Jenny out, he learns that she dates all the boys, and he feels less important. What about Ginny? Does that make her really popular? Do the boys and girls like her? Is she welcome to join this group? Hi, Betty, Ellie. You can rest your tray here, Ginny, for a minute. Thanks. Say, Wally, how's the play coming along? Oh, okay, Ginny. Here, Jenny. No, Thanks, girls Jerry. who park in cars are not really popular. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Yeah. Young Romantics, we're going to talk <laughs> about some more romance comics. Uh, Young Romance was an instant success, uh, becoming Jack and Joe's biggest hit in years, and it would sell millions of copies, and actually 92% of its entire print run. Wow. Uh, yeah, Crestwood would increase the print run by the third issue to triple the initial numbers, as well as upgrade the title from bi-monthly to every month. And this ran through issues 13 through 72. Those are uh, cover dates September 1949 through August 1954. Within a year and a half, Simon and Kirby were launching companion titles for Crestwood to capitalize on the success of this new genre. The first issue of Young Love, February 1949, also sold well with indistinguishable content from Young Romance. Um, now, further spin-off titles, Young Brides. Uh, these are married couples stories uh, from September, October 1952, cover date. And In Love, which were book-length stories, September 1954, cover date. They also followed, uh, they were produced by the Simon and Kirby stable of artists and writers. Despite a glut of com- competitors, the Simon and Kirby romance titles continued to sell $5 million a month, allowing the pair to earn more than enough to buy their first homes. Remember, they're getting 50% of the profits here of all these books. Yeah, it, huge, that's wild. Big amounts of money, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, these uh, com- competitors caused Crestwood to adopt the prize group seal on their covers of the Simon and Kirby produced titles as the easiest means for readers to tell the Simon and Kirby produced love comics from the Legion of Imitators. And we're going to talk about a few of those imitators uh, coming up, but mm-hmm. Young Romance ran for 124 issues until June 1963. It returned to bi-monthly with, status, uh, bi-monthly with issue number 73, that was October 1954 cover date, and continued on this schedule for 17 years, missing only one month, August 63, when the title switched publishers from Crestwood slash prized DC Comics, alongside its sister publication, Young Love. There, Young Romance ran for an additional 85 issues until 1975. Young Love ceased publication in 1977 after an accumulated 208 issues. Mm. Timely brought the second romance title to newsstands with My Romance in August 1948, and Fox Feature Syndicate released the third title, My Life, True Stories, and Pictures, in uh, September 1948. Fawcett Publications followed with Sweethearts, the first monthly romance title, in October 1948. Fawcett also published three issues of Negro Romance, beginning in June 1950. This is notable for its lack of stereotypes and overt racism, having even an African-American character in college. All three issues are written by Roy Aide, a white dude, and was illustrated by Alvin Hollinsworth, the first African-American artist hired by Fawcett. By 1950, more than 150 romance titles were on the newsstands from Quality Comics, Avon, Lev Gleason Publications, and uh, DC Comics. The DC Comics romance line, titles like Secret Hearts and Girls' Romances, they were overseen by Jack Miller, who also wrote many of the stories. Fox Feature Syndicate published over two dozen romance comics. Seventeen would feature my in the title, you know, thinking like my desire, my secret, my Mm -hmm. secret affair, and stuff like that. Uh, Now, other contemporary titles would include Cinderella Love from Ziff Davis from 1950 through 1955. Uh, The book would be acquired by St. John in 1953. Cindy Comics from Marvel Comics from 1947 through 1950. A Date with Judy ran 79 issues uh, from national publications. That was from October-November 1947 to November 1960 cover dates. That was based on a popular radio serial that actually went longer than the serial did. Uh, mm. Diary Love slash G.I. Sweetheart slash Girls in Love. This one changed its titles a few times. Uh, this came from Quality Comics, ran from 1949 to 1956. Dottie Comics from Ace Magazines ran from 48 to 49. The title changed to Glamorous Romances at issue 41. First Love Illustrated from Harvey Comics went from 1949 to 1963. Flaming Love from Quality Comics from 1949 through 1950. That's pretty short-lived for Flaming Love. <laughs> the flame uh, burns burns bright, but it, briefly, yeah. Yes. Now, Girls Comics from Timely, Atlas Comics from 1949 through 54. Girls Love Stories, DC Comics from 1949 through 1973. Girls Romances, also from DC Comics from 1950 through 1971. There was Heart Throbs from Quality Comics from 1949 to 1972. That was acquired by DC Comics in 1957. High School Romance, H.I. hyphen school. <laughs> uh, 51 issues from Harvey Comics, 1949 to 1958. Love Confessions from Quality Comics ran from 1949 to 1956. Love Lessons from Harvey Comics from 49 to 50. 
Love Letters, quality comics from 1949 through 1956. Love Romances, ran through uh, Timely Atlas and Marvel Comics, uh, 1949 through 1963. Love Scandals, quality comics, 1950, a very, very short uh, one. It's too scandalous. Sorry, folks. It was yeah. way too scandalous. <laughs> uh, Love Lorne, which uh, became Confessions of the Love Lorne, came out from American Comics Group from 1949 through 1960. Modern Love, who had eight issues, came out from EC Comics from 49 to 50. They didn't have, they didn't have a good go with the uh, oh. romance themselves, but they gave it a shot. Uh, popular Teenagers from Star Publications ran from 1950 to 1954. Range Romances what came out oh, from Quality Comics, yep, from 49 to 50, and this was a Western romance mix. Then uh, Romantic Adventures, which became My Romantic Adventures. This was American Comics Group. Read from 49 to 64. They just needed that my in there. That's the, uh, that's the golden short. ticket. Whose romantic <laughs> adventures are these? Oh, I don't want to pick it up and find out. Yeah. Uh, we have Romance Tales from Atlas Comics from 1949 through 50. Uh, romantic Marriage from Ziff Davis from 1950 through 1954. That one, like the other Davis, was acquired by uh, St. John in 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romantic Secrets from Fawcett Comics from 1949 through 1964. They'd be acquired by Charlton Comics in 1953. Romantic Story, Fawcett Comics, 1949 through 73, also acquired by Charlton, but this one in 1954. Yeah, I don't know why it was a year later, but there it was. They they Uh, sat in limbo. I guess they were like, make them them sweat that one out. But uh, (laughs) Secret Hearts came out from National D.C. from uh, 1949 to 1971. Secret Love Stories, Fox Comics did that one in 1949. Strange Loves, Fox Comics tried again, 1950. (laughs) Sweethearts from Fawcett Comics came out in 1948 to 1973. That was acquired by Charlton in 1954. Teen-Age Romances from St. John Publications, 1949 through 1955. True Stories of Romance from Fawcett Comics in 1950. I think we saved the best for last. (laughs) Untamed Love from Quality Comics, 1950. And uh, this list that we just went through only covers titles that began in 1950 or before. Yeah, there's like a hundred or more titles that we we could rattle off. There were so many of these things. Uh... But yeah, this this would have been contemporary with the comic reading now. With these would have been the other titles on the stands next to it. So uh, not quite a romance comic, but definitely in the same wheelhouse is Archie comics, particularly titular character Archie's love triangle with Betty and Veronica. Uh, Reggie Mantle is also in the mix, so I guess you could call it a quadrangle. Hmm. Now, uh, teenage Archibald Chick Andrews debuted with Betty Cooper and Jughead Jones uh, in Pep Comics number twenty-two. December 1941 cover date by Vic Bloom and Bob Montana. Archie soon became MLG Ma- MLJ Magazine's headliner, which led to the company changing its name to Archie Comic Publications. Veronica Lodge debuted not long after in Pep Comics number 26, April 1942, and a love triangle was born. And you will probably, I think eventually we will delve into the uh, Archie story and stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, but these stories were played more for laughs, really. And however, not really. They were all, they were definitely aimed toward younger children. So not really the same as these romance comics, especially not the one we read today, which would have been for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> teens, mid, you know, 15, 16 year olds or whatever. Now, uh, romance comics were not immune to the anti-comics fervor that dominated the early 1950s. And, uh, Our friend Dr. Frederick Wortham devoted quite a lot of copy to these titles in his book, Seduction of the Innocent, from 1954. 
and Harden Company. Uh, according to Wortham, romance comics set false ideals for female readership. You know, the ideas like love at first sight. Mm-hmm. He also suggested they, quote, stimulated male readership and referred to the books as headlight comics. But they did, boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, one news, news dealer would report a sale of 30 love comics to a sailor in his mid-20s. So he, <laughs> a sailor wanted those headlight comics. Yep. Uh, they also promoted or glamorized theft in the name of romance promoted greed and consumerism, and often depicted violence as well. I think we saw a lot of that in the book we just read. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Now, following the implementation of the Comics Code in 1954, publishers of romance comics self-censored the content of their publications, making the stories bland and innocent with an emphasis on traditional patriarchal concepts of women's behavior, gender roles, roles, domesticity, and marriage. Uh, Perhaps ironically, by falling in line with the comics code, the comics became much more misogynistic, and so stopped drawing the adult female readership they were partly designed to capture. Yeah, and uh, that would really be the beginning of the end, although it was sort of a long ending when we see when we, some of yes. these comics did Drawn peter out, out but uh, they a lot of them were bi-monthly, remember, or even less frequent than that. Uh, now, romance comics were a product of the post-war years in America and bolstered the Cold War era's ideology regarding the American way of life, which is namely middle-class suburban living, the nuclear family, and consumerism. Girls of the Cold War era were encouraged to grow up early and assume the roles of loving wives, concerned mothers, and happy homemakers. Female promiscuity, career ambition, and independence were, you know, verboten. Uh, women were depicted as incomplete without a male, but the genre discouraged the aggressive pursuit of men or any behaviors that smacked of promiscuity. Female readers were advised to maintain a passive gender role or romance, marriage, and happiness would be imperiled. The Feminine Mystique. That's a book written by Betty Friedan. Friedan, Friedan yeah. Uh, published on February 19th, 1963 by W.W. W. Norton, which is uh, widely credited with sparking the beginning of second wave feminism in the United States. First wave feminism would be the women fighting for you know, voting and property rights at the beginning of the 20th century. Right. In 1957, Frieden was uh, asked to conduct a survey of her former Smith College classmates for their 15th anniversary reunion. The results, in which she found that many of them were unhappy with their lives as housewives, that would prompt her to begin research for the feminine mystique, conducting interviews with other suburban housewives, as well as researching psychology, media, as well as advertising. She originally intended to publish an article on the topic, not a book, but no magazine would publish that article. In that same year, The Feminine Mystique was released. President John F. Kennedy's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women released its report on gender inequality. It found, essentially, that the genders were unequal. Also, in 1963, freelance journalist Gloria Steinem authored a diary while working undercover as a Playboy bunny waitress at the Playboy Club. It was published as a two-part feature in the May and June issues of Show magazine. In her diary, Steinem alleged the club was mistreating its waitresses in order to gain male customers and exploited the Playboy bunnies as symbols of male chauvinism, noting that the club's manual instructed the bunnies that there are many pleasing ways they can enjoy to stimulate the club's liquor volume. Uh, during the year 1964, The Feminine Mystique became the best-selling non-fiction book with over one million copies sold. Politicians began to recognize the frustration, frustrations of women due in part to, the, to Betty Friedan, and in 1963, the commission appointed to review the status of women recommended to an end to inequalities. 
Legislation followed, and the Equal Pay Act of 1963 stipulated that women received the same pay as men for the same work. The National Organization for Women was organized in 1966 with 30 women from different backgrounds. Betty Friedan was one of them and uh, was named the organization's first president. They called for, quote, the true equality for all women and demanded the removal of all barriers to equal and economic advance. Amongst the most significant legal victories of the movement after the formation of NOW were a 1967 executive order extending full affirmative action rights to women, a 1968 decision ruling illegal sex-segregated help-wanted ads, and the Women's Educational Equity Act of 1974. And there were many other federal orders and acts propagated by the National Organization of Women. That's just a smattering. Mm -hmm. Uh, By 1968, Steinem had become arguably the most influential figure in the movement, and support for legalized abortion and federally funded daycares had become the two leading leading objectives for feminists. Steinem co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1971 with Dorothy Pittman Hughes, and this became the official periodical of the feminist movement. And so, in this climate, there was no room for romance comics, which would promote marriage, subservience to one's man, as well as the nuclear family. In a 2005 interview, one-time Charlton editor-in-chief Dick Giordano said, Girls simply outgrew romance comics. The content was too tame for the more sophisticated, sexually liberated women's libbers, who were able to see nudity, strong sexual content, and life the way it really was in other media. Hand-holding and pining after the cute boy on the football team just didn't do it anymore, and the comics code wouldn't pass anything that truly resembled real-life relationships. Yeah, and we've, uh, you know, there have been other attempts to bring this back, both in serious ways and more tongue-in-cheek ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that Young Heroes in Love was sort of in that... In that vein, ta- yeah. Taking at least from the existence of romance comics, you know, uh, the title, you know, if not the, sure. the theme of it, but... Uh, you know, we we may talk about some of that later down the line, but they've definitely never, as far as I know, hooked on to anybody. Although it's interesting to say, romance manga sells like it's sells huge. like gangbusters. I mean, in Absolutely. a way, almost all manga it appears to have romantic elements. Although I'm sure some of it doesn't. But let's not talk about yeah, because they they <laughs> yeah no, we don't talk about that. Uh, during the uh, I want to say the toward the end of the Jemison Casada Marvel, there was a Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, right? Which was a uh, which was very much manga format. Uh, it's a manga inspired art. I'm not even sure if it might have been a mangaka who did it. Uh, the art, anyway. This is like but, a, uh, the that, early 2000 or like uh... early to mid 2000s, right. yeah. And uh, I think they even put those out as digests, too. So uh, there was an attempt. I don't know how successful it was. I, I've, never, I've never read one. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that just can't come back as, as it was. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough nut to crack because what do you, what do you present you know, it, as a romance story in a comic these days? Today, you, know, you, definitely, yeah. you definitely can't have a uh, you know, woman giving up her life in Washington, D.C. to go live with a guy on his farm. <laughs> But at the same time, then what? Then and what we, is it? And um, we don't have elevator operators anymore. Good, so. thank goodness. And you don't want to look through some guy's eye holes to do wow. anything. So uh, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really. Have, I don't have much more to say about it other than it would be really a tough thing to do in the American market. But uh, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind seeing someone make an earnest attempt at bringing back uh, romance single issues, and they get you know down the line, especially after the code, they get even weirder. Uh, yes. So I think eventually we will tackle some more of these and try to uh, 
figure out for ourselves, you know, what what is the deal with romance comics, you know? How dare they read these comics? Anyway, uh, <laughs> we do have a piece of mail from uh, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, who was very uh, nice to tell us how to pronounce his name. Thank you very That's much. true. Uh, he is at BigOx737, and his blog is comicscomicscomics.blog, and this is regarding Cosmic Treadmill episode 93, where we uh, read Kill Image number one. He says, once again, you guys are doing the important work reading comics so we don't have to. Actually, in this case, I imagine the research could have been pretty unpleasant at some points. I'm certainly not going to go Google some of the things you brought up. While as fascinating as the comic itself was, I don't think this it is one I will pick up at this point if I were to come across it. I thought this episode was really interesting and I very much like the many good points you make about free speech and the free market. I don't remember hearing of Hart Fisher, Kill Image, his Jeffrey Dahmer comic, or any of the other history you covered, but a lot of this happened while I was on a bit of a financial break from comics while I was in school. Beer and pizza took precedence over Wizard Magazine and a weekly pull list on my extremely limited budget. And we hear that. Oh, yeah. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> We've all Wizard been there. Magazine's oh. always first. <laughs> he goes on. I've got to say, based on what you said about the owners of Planet Comics and what was in the CBLDF link you posted, those guys got a raw deal. Now, uh, to fill in a little context there, these guys were uh, arrested uh, for selling a certain comic right. book. Right, the, the obscenity um, laws are... Yes, it was uh, Veronica number four. Right. Um, Jeremiah continues, if the comics are not displayed and have to be specifically asked for by consenting adults, I do not think that's a crime. It certainly is not deserving of the attacks and damage done to their store and reputations. Fisher certainly seems to have had it pretty rough between how he grew up and the tragedies he went through later in his life. It all sounds pretty awful. I do not feel bad about what he experienced professionally, though. Honestly, I think he brought a lot of that on himself. I think he has the right to, to write and draw whatever he wants. Free speech is indeed sacrosanct, as you said. If he can get it published and can find a market for it, great. Good for him. I don't want to re- If I don't want to read it or buy it, I don't have to. If I don't want to visit a comic shop that sells the comic, I don't have to. That's my choice. I should not put him down or the publisher or the store because of how I feel about the material. Where I draw issue with some of it is how he seems to have a chip on his shoulder about this big guy, little guy stuff. I think there are more constructive ways he could have tried to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's pretty much spot on the way we feel about it, right, Chris? Uh, pretty much. Pretty much pretty to much. a T. You know, as we, as we talked about it, went through it, and, uh, you know, like I believe I said during the episode, I think I've said since, this really was Chris's baby that he <laughs> delved into for quite a, quite a long time. Uh, what, started, for, yeah. what started out as a lark became a, you know, much more detailed thing, and I don't think, you know, often when we're working on these scripts, we go, we ask each other, how does this sound? Does this read okay? Does this make sense, you know? And I don't think we've had as much back and forth on a script as we had about the one for kill image that one was yeah that one was very very deep there were just so many topics uh that took us outside of our comfort zone i guess we can say <laughs> uh and took us out of, outside of comics uh almost totally sometimes yeah uh we did make some choices to not say we omitted some things yeah. some things but stuff that really had nothing to do with his comics or media career or anything like that uh Insofar as the free speech, though, we're right there with you, um, especially in, in a system like comics, right? I mean, you you then and now you can't get a comic unless you go to the place and get it. You know what I mean? You're not gonna yeah, you're not gonna system, see yeah. it on on a commercial on TV. You're not gonna walk by it on the newsstand. You you have to go in there and get it. And especially if they're keeping it behind the counter, 
there's 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 no harm done here. You know what I mean? It's there's no. literally a victimless crime as far as I'm concerned. No, uh, it's almost like it was entrapment. I mean, you had the uh, right. you had the undercover officers go in and specifically ask for a comic so they could come in and raid it. Absolutely, no, it's they, just it it was it was it was a a grift the whole time. Uh, Absolutely, they knew what they knew what they were getting. They knew what they could get their hands on and. Uh, you know, they they made a thing out of it, and that it's that's the. I mean, when people talk about free speech and how you know the first, but that's literally impugning free speech. The government coming in Inter- and dictating, yeah. intervening, and saying what you can, you know, can and can't say. Uh, for the town, for example, if, to say that that'd be another thing. You know, if they mm-hmm. could have a campaign, but it didn't go that way. So it's. Um, you know, we we came to have a real respect for Hart Fisher. Uh, well, still admitting though, he definitely had a angry guy mentality. Uh, it was very confrontational. Very for confrontational. Sure. There, for sure. there are ways he, you know, just like Jeremiah says, he could have done something other than murder the three guys. An image <laughs> in a comic, you know, but that's what he did. It's uh, true, and uh, we actually heard from him not too long ago. He yeah. uh, listened to the episode. He liked it. Um, he said we did a really good job on it, and uh, couldn't be happier to hear that. That's a. Uh... That's what we wanted. We didn't. We didn't. We weren't trying to make anybody angry. We uh, we also weren't trying to blindly praise somebody. We wanted to make sure we gave everyone as much context and information as possible to make your your own decision. Um, Jeremiah says he wouldn't buy a Fisher's other work or this work, I, whereas I would. I right. know it's, but then again, I I have a a flair for you know novelty and uh, you you and would for a buck or less. Let's let's, let's, let's <laughs> you're not you're not you're not gonna be at eBay dropping fify bucks on oh, this no, Dahmer no, comic, be, you know. Uh, no. I oh, probably, I you probably, couldn't get it for fifty bucks. I probably would, knowing what I know now. But could you, could you wholeheartedly recommend Kill Image to everybody? I don't think so. You know, it would. It's, no, no, it's, it's definitely it's crazy. You almost you know? had to live through the time. Yeah, uh, you know, because it was very much uh, in the gestalt of that early to mid speculator boom and. Definitely. uh the way that you know Marvel and Image tried to monopolize the shelves. I mean, it's it's all there's there is there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, of course, you know there, there's a bit of a gruffness to that truth, but uh, but yeah, I I don't know that someone who maybe comes into comics now or even within the past fifteen twenty years would get as much out of it as we did. Yeah, for I, having through that time. Also, sometimes people they expect a certain level of production value from a comic, and this one might not achieve that. But uh, that's for you to find out. That's for you to <laughs> dig through the uh, dollar bins and hopefully cheaper bins than that if you can Certainly. if you can do it and find out. And, and if you do see it for a quarter, I would say it's definitely worth your time for a quarter, even going up to a dollar. After that, maybe you should. Uh, Start to you know, think about what you might, what else you could spend that money. Just listen on. to the episode. Again. Yeah, or listen to the episode. That really is uh, pretty much as, as close as you want to get to. I think to some of the material for some people out there. But uh, you know, um, if you want to write to us, talk more about free speech or about Hart uh, Fisher, or you want to talk about Young Romance Number One, Jack Kirby, Joe Simon, you want to just talk about romance, just send us sweet nothings for us to read, or that will make us feel good. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. You can tumble us on Tumblr, cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. And we're on Twitter at cosmicteamail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com, and you can see Chris's daily writings at his personal blog, chrisisaninfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a 
different DC comic every day of the week. Today you did Our Man number two, which I have not mm-hmm. looked at yet, but I having, but I can't wait to look at it because I remember that being a wacky one. That's a fun. Uh, story. Yeah, and, and actually, you've been getting into recent comics, which is a rarity for you. You've been really enjoying the it Flash is. War. Oh uh, yeah, that's which, which that's I, about the only new release that I'm getting excited about. Let me tell you, seeing you excited about that almost makes me excited. For <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a, the transitive property of your blog is working. It's an effect. So uh, you got to check that out. If you're not excited about the Flash War, ChristianInfiniteEarth.com. That's where you can get your excitement. There you go. Uh, we also have the show site, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll be looking through your own eyes. <laughs> meat, <laughs> meat mask eyes. Yeah, you Very, gotta, very soon. You got to check this one out, folks. It really uh, defies belief. And I, I will also link where you can read the entire issue the entire book, uh, yeah. for yourself. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill romantically. See ya. Rock the cradle of love.